Welcome to the Innovation Nation on Career Buzz, Canada's unique radio conversation that empowers lives, enriches careers, and energizes organizations. Welcome to the Innovation Nation on Career Buzz. Hi, I'm Stephen Armstrong, and I'm pleased to be your host today on Innovation Nation on Career Buzz. Innovation Nation explores the intersection of the real world business practice and people's career development. We explore how individuals turn their personal passion for innovation into tangible commercial success. Thank you for tuning in this morning. Today on your show, we focus on engineering practical solutions for everyday health issues. We discuss the work on the reduction of falls, which are the scourge of growing into old age. Now, biomedical engineering is a multidisciplinary uh, nature, has a critical role to play in meeting this challenge. Now, it's a relatively new, distinctive, and multidisciplinary field that merges concepts in engineering to solve a wide and diverse array of problems tied to human health. Falls are a major safety concern, especially in older people. Approximately 28 to 35% of people age 65 and above fall at least once every year. Biomedical engineering is also tackling prevention in the spread of disease. Our guest today is eminent uh, in this field, has dedicated his life to it. Professor Jeff Burney, he develops technologies to prevent injury and disease. He's the Chief Executive Officer of Hygienic Echo, which is the startup company addressing infection prevention. He has developed innovative mobility products, non-slip winter footwear, and improvements to building codes. Jeff has been responsible for many products that assist people's independence as well as their safety, including innovative wheelchairs and bathroom aids. In recent years, Jeff's focus has shifted to preventing the transmission of infections, which he thinks are a growing threat to the world. Now, Jeff holds various professorships in engineering and in medicine at the University of Toronto. He has also led the Toronto Rehabilitation Institute at the University Health Network from 2003 to 2017. In retiring and he continues to hold the emeritus scientist position. Jeff is a licensed professional engineer in Ontario, a chartered mechanical engineer in the UK, 
and he holds a PhD from Strathclyde University in Glasgow. He was elected recently as a fellow of the Canadian Academy of Engineering, which is the highest uh, award you can get in Canada in the engineering field. Jeff, welcome to the show. Stephen, thank you. That was a rather generous introduction, but I'm happy to join you. Well, look, if I had actually written the all the, the appointments you have in professorships at the University of Toronto, it's quite incredible. Like there's about five or six in various departments and institutes. So that was a summary. I can assure everyone that there's a lot more to, to what he is than just what I said. Let's get into it, Jeff. Talk about your current focus. Now, you retired in 2017, but as a man that leads, you, you're you not sitting on your laurels. You're, you have a startup business. What's that about, please? Yeah, look, I'm, I, I don't see myself retiring. I don't like bingo. So um, what I'm doing is trying to make available the results of research that's been going on in the background for about 20 years. I've been particularly worried about infections. I hope I'm not exact. Well, I hope I am exaggerating, actually, in a way. I think that infection is one of the biggest challenges to mankind, and it's of the order of, you know, global warming. It's a huge problem, and it's growing. The solutions to infection are not easy um, uh, to apply because they involve both engineering and behavioral change. It's, it's kind of difficult to get people to change their way of doing things. Um, my interest, first of all, has focused on washing your hands, hand hygiene. People always assume that they wash their hands enough, but if you work in the healthcare field, particularly, but also in other fields, in food preparation and other areas, um, hand washing is really critical. The CDC reckons that um, about 100,000 patients are killed every year in North America because they get an infection when they go into a hospital that they didn't have before they went into the hospital. It runs at about sort of 7%, I think it's generally agreed, if of the patients in hospitals in Canada have an infection that otherwise they 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 would not have had. That's what, a big what, enough. Yeah. yeah what, sorry. What, what are infections? Yeah. A, well, yeah. there's there, there's so many different kinds of infections. Obviously, there are viral infections like COVID, but um, there are also bacterial infections. There are um, the infections that I'm concerned with are called hospital-acquired infections, or HAIs, ones that you pick up primarily from contact, um, from transmission by hand from one caregiver touching one patient to another patient. There's also a big worry these days about um, the growing problem of antibiotic-resistant infections. It's reckoned that more than a quarter of the deaths due to infection at the moment, where infection is the cause of death, is not just accompanying death, are untreatable or very extremely difficult to treat um, because of resistance to current antibiotics. And this is growing. We're going to see a, a, a lot of these. Um, 
Infections also include, um, you know, there are some strange protein things, there are parasites, there are all sorts of microbes that um, get into the body and cause a reaction that isn't always treatable. Jeff, you said something there that triggered my radar, resistance to antibiotics. I want to know why there's an increasing resistance to, is it just antibiotics or is it is it medicine in general? Is it pharma in general? No, it's the, 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 the big worry is that antibiotics, I mean, actually my dad was very badly injured in the Second World War. And that was fortunately when he came back, um, antibiotics were just being discovered with penicillin. And penicillin was thought to be the answer to everything. And we thought we'd have a new era where infections were no longer a problem, they would be addressed. But gradually, people used too much of these in, um, antibiotics, and the bugs adapted. Yes, uh, yes. And, and they and they change, and they mutate. They they no longer can be treated. And um, we now have bugs that are very resistant to treatment and some that simply can't be treated. Oh, you don't mean, you don't mean human resistance to taking antibiotics. You mean the bugs oh. themselves are resistant. Yeah, 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 Stephen, that's, that's right. Sorry, I hadn't even thought of that. No, well, because, because there's an increasing amount of, like, I you know, have a family doctor and I, they tell me stuff and they say that people are not even taking flu vaccines. I yeah, mean, people are, are people. There's a lot of psychological resistance to medicine, to pharma these days, because of all the controversies around, you know, the the COVID and all that business. So I thought that's what you were talking about, but you're talking about resistance from the bugs themselves. No, if you don't mind me being blunt, I wasn't talking about the crackpots. Um, there are plenty of crackpots who for some reason, believe that vaccination, for example, is bad for you. And that's against all the, all the knowledge that we have. So um, obviously, there are side effects to the treatment of medication treatment. But we're talking about something very, very serious. We're talking about bugs that have adapted so that they're no longer able to be treated with um, antibiotics. That's, the, that's a very, very big worry now. Gotcha. Now, let's talk about your background or let's talk about some you're talking about hand hygiene. let's talk, before we go into your background tell us tell me about some of your current initiatives yeah okay so if let let's talk first of all about uh, a typical hospital scenario where um, the rules are that as a nurse for example you have to wash your hands before you go into a room and uh, where there's a patient and you have to wash your hands also um, when you leave the room. There are other times that you have to wash your hands, but these are the important ones. This is where you're trying to avoid uh, an infection uh, being transmitted from patient to patient to patient. That sounds pretty easy, um, but typically a typical nurse would have to wash their hands, say about a hundred times um, in a shift. And if you think about that, that's a lot wow. of time. It's a uh, lot of, it's incredible. It's like, that's a hundred times 30 seconds. Exactly. <laughs> you're gone. It's nearly an hour, isn't it? It's and, incredible. <laughs> and, and, and that's, and, and this, your skin also doesn't like that. You have nope. those creams and things you get, 
sore hands, but everyone's yelling at you. They want you to get this, hurry and get that, pick this up and stuff. And honestly, there's people are not um, are not uh, intentionally avoiding washing their hands. They, these are these are kind, dedicated people, but it's easy to forget sometimes when you're carrying things and you're rushing around. The if you if you listen to the public relations from hospital departments, the because hospitals are are actually um, accountable for hand hygiene and have to report it, and um, CEOs even even have their pay. Um, based partly on the hand hygiene compliance in their hospitals, they will report 80 or 90% uh, success. That is nonsense. If you actually measure it, um, you're down typically in the 20 to 35% range of compliance with these rules. Um, the rest is just... Um, you know, Hawthorne effects, people in white coats watching with clipboards and getting a higher result. So there's a really serious problem here. But the problem is, is people forgetting. So what we've done is developed an electronic system, kind of clever. It's a, a little... A, a, a measurement system. system. Yeah, a measure so look, yeah. Well, it does more than that. It doesn't just measure, it reminds you. Mm. If you've forgotten, it tells you to 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 wash your hands and um and it also chooses actually it's it's pretty neat it chooses every night in each unit that it's installed in it chooses a winner someone who's doing really well or is progressing well or something and they get a ten dollar card automatically uh, retail card i don't know whether i can advertise it but a sort of coffee ten dollar coffee card comes in an automated email in the morning and it's amazing how, how, how does it monitor them because it knows how often the badge knows the when badge. they're in out of rooms yeah and it knows how often they and when they wash their hands yeah fascinating and your company are you behind that or is is that is yeah. that your invention yeah, well, I never claim any invention to myself. I always work with a team. Um, so, yeah, it's a, a group of us um, under my leadership, if you like, but a group of us um, developed this and we tested it and it works. Then we don't have any choice. We, um, I know that's the emphasis of this program, the idea that um, commercialization and research go together. It must go together. How else are we going to get the results of the research applied? I mean, my mum, bless her, is 97 now, still alive. Wow. Very, very, very confused these days. But in earlier days, she was quite a personality in her community. And she would often um, say, hey, Jeff, I've got a neighbor who's got this problem. They're falling or they've got incontinence or whatever. Um, what solution do you have? And I can tell you, sending a reprint of a journal publication really is not particularly useful on those occasions. No, they want practical solutions. They want things. Yeah, they want practical solutions, which in, often, in my case are often things. Um, so, you know, if you're at an airport, you'll have probably encountered wheelchairs um, that I developed for moving people around that move about a million and a half people a day. Um, there are various, you know, 
types of bathroom aids and stuff. But I, I firmly believe that um, uh, commercialization is part of the responsibility of the researcher. Um, the, it, there's no other way to get your stuff applied. Um, if it's especially if it's challenging, if it's really novel new stuff, no, no, uh, no current company is going to come and license it. They, they frankly say, why should I? I've got a good market. I don't. I'm, I'm doing fine. If you, if you can prove to me that you, you develop a big market, then maybe we'll buy you out. That's the usual reaction. Got you. I'm Stephen Armstrong, and you're listening to the Innovation Nation on Career Buzz here on CIUT 89.5 FM in Toronto and worldwide online at CIUT.FM. Jeff, it's a perfect segue into your background and, and environment. You were originally trained or educated as an engineer, a degree in engineering, and then a PhD. And you found your way into biomedical engineering. Tell us a little bit about your thinking process as you went through your education, how you get into this field. I also want to say one other thing. We do know that like 95% of research in universities, very little of it, of it is commercialized and it is a big problem. And you are breaking that that uh, history. You're, you're actually commercializing and, and practical. So it all seems to do with your roots. Tell me about your roots, please. Yeah, okay. Um, when I was an undergrad in applied sciences, I was not a very good student. I um, was not inspired particularly, so I, I actually did a lot of lighting for pop groups. I lit for Pink Floyd and stuff as a hobby, and <laughs> and I was on this. I was captain of the sailing team, and God knows what else. So that in those days, you had a personal tutor, and my personal tutor, a chap called Martin Black, was a fabulous guy. And he, he got worried. So in my last summer, he found me a job in a place called Chaley Heritage, which was a country home in the south of England, very pretty, where at the time they sent kids with disabilities. And it was a, both a hospital and a school and a home for them. And many of those kids had their mothers had taken thalidomide. Uh, which was a uh, 1960s yeah yeah and and the kids um had some of them had no limbs at all um you know missing four limbs and things and at the time i went there they were about six or seven years old and i love kids that age and i got to um work very closely with those kids trying to develop powered artificial limbs um the technology was hopeless. It, they, they would put these limbs on the kids for the sake of the uh, Sunday newspapers, which had colored supplements those days. And they would take pictures of the kids smiling, standing in these things. And as soon as the photographers left, the kids would take the prostheses off and they would start scratching their head with their toes and things like that. Mm -hmm. They were adorable, but it was, and, and I, I knew this was an era I wanted, this, this turned me on. I wanted to do something to help these people. And um, it seemed so practical, but it also seemed incredibly challenging. I mean, it just it, the, the technology just wasn't anywhere near it. It turns out that Strathclyde in Scotland was the place to go. And they only admitted eight students a year. I got into it. 
Was this for re was this for your PhD research? My PhD, yeah. yeah. And, so, and was, was was it called biomedical engineering at that time? It was called bioengineering. Okay. Um, and uh, oh, it was fantastic. Um, we were taught to to be able to immerse ourselves in a medical environment. I was examined on helping a, give a uh, helping a plastic mother give birth to a plastic baby with forceps. Um, we. <laughs> We we anesthetize each other. We did some really bizarre things to get to understand the medical world, and I absolutely loved it. But I realized that there were a lot of really basic problems that needed dealing with, and uh, in addition to the very sort of sexy, uh, attractive, high tech, high newsworthy things. And I I actually did my PhD on bed sores, um, mechanics of skin, and why people got bed sores and how to deal with that. So, and ever since then, I've always focused on the common problems that people face. In fact, that's how I choose projects. I, I, need, uh, I need to know that the problem is common, that it's significant, it really affects people. And also, frankly, I admit, that I think it's solvable with the resources that I have because I don't have time to waste. There's so many problems around hey, can, this. And can, I, can I ask you why you stayed in an engineering path and not went into medicine and be, become a doctor? I mean, you're, we know as engineers that the work that you do is overshadowed by medicine. But most, many of the innovations in medicine and healthcare are engineering. How, how, how did you conceptualize that as a young person following a particular path and making decisions about your career? How did you think about that? You know, I don't. I, I, I got so busy straight away trying to solve problems. I don't know whether I did. I, one of my first jobs when I came to Toronto was at what was called the Toronto Hospital for the Consumptive Poor. It was a TB hospital uh, originally, and then it changed its name, and it eventually became West Park after several uh, generations. And I was the orthopedic surgeons who recruited me. I'm actually in, in orthopedic surgery. Um, they asked me to start an amputee center there. So I started an amputee center in this old hospital, and um the medicine was a bit lacking at the time and because of my training i saw even though i was supposed to get research going i got research going but i went and saw every patient every night before i went home and if i got worried about them i call my buddies in the department of surgery and transfer them um those were the old days it's a long time ago now it was much more informal anyway one day the professor of surgery the chair of surgery came around to make an inspection and he met the patients and saw what was going on. And he turned to me and he said, my boy, you're looking after these people. Well, I'd like you to become a professor in the department. So I, I think I became the first non-surgeon professor of surgery. And I have to tell you, I was totally welcomed. I was involved in every aspect of the department of surgery. I recently won its, its, it's a um, big prize and um and they they welcomed me completely so i never felt a need to go into medicine i always always felt welcome and i felt equal 
and I felt that I could contribute um, perhaps even more than if I'd just become yet another person in medicine. I was rather unusual as a... No, it's, as an what a that's one hell of a story, I have to tell you. You you ran the Toronto Rehabilitation Institute at the U of T, which everyone, anyone in downtown Toronto will see. There's a big label at the, I think it's right at Toronto General Hospital on Avenue Road. It's quite an imposing building. You were the, well, you led, I'm not sure what your director, I'm not sure what the title was, but from 2003 to 2017, tell us about that. Now, we've only three minutes, so before the break, but go ahead and okay. try to. Yeah. Yeah. No, all right. So, well, you know, I'm 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 really passionate about prevention. I, I think that it's so much easier to prevent injuries than it is to treat them. So I wanted to prevent accidents and injury, particularly with older people. Therefore, I needed to simulate accidents and injury very realistically. So I actually needed to dig a very big hole. This about five stories deep under University Avenue and insert simulators to be able to do a very precise, um, very realistic simulation of accident scenarios. And and that's what happened. I got I got a big grant. So I was very lucky in getting those and built lots of it's it's the most unusual laboratory in the world. And TRI became the number one rehabilitation research group in the world. I'm proud of that. I always wanted it to be very applied and solve a lot of problems, and I'm continuing to support it doing that. What was the amount of staff you had there, Jeff, at the at the Toronto Rehabilitation I think, Institute? I think, I think our team, including all the students and yeah. staff, was somewhere around three to. Well, I know it was somewhere between three and four hundred. I think close to four hundred. Yeah. Interesting. We'll take a break now, Jeff, because uh, I I, I want to get back into the, the TRI, uh, sorry, the Toronto Rehabilitation Institute. And in the second half, I want to hear more about it. But we'll take a break and we're going to play your favorite song uh, from James Blunt, the greatest from his 2019 fifth studio album, Once Upon a Mind. It's a battle of time. That I have with you We don't decide The how, the when Or if we make it through I feel that you deserve a chance To know the truth And to be better than The ones who came before you Only to let pride and money weaken them So be the young The brave The powerful Cause the world Is standing waiting for someone to come and change it Yeah, be the young, the brave, the powerful Cause we need a soul to save us Need someone to be the greatest So many words Veiling the truth the earth is turning and it's time for us to choose And people will try to take you down too But if I was a betting man, I'd put all my money on you I know that I have nothing left to give to you to make you better than 
The man I failed to be, the friend and father that I know I should have been. So be the young, the brave, the powerful. We're back at the Innovation Nation on Career Buzz, and I'm your host, Stephen Armstrong. Before continuing to the second half of our interview, I want listeners to know about the Innovation Nation archive. Go to amgimanagement.com and select radio show. Here is over 112, I think it's we're up at 112 shows now on many topics, artificial intelligence, strategic thinking, engineers, doctors without borders, design thinking, leadership and innovation, early childhood education, advanced manufacturing, creative destruction, entrepreneurship, tons of interesting shows and subjects. We're back with Jeff Burney, and our topic today is engineering practical solutions to everyday health issues. Jeff, in the first half of the show, we really just touched your role at the Toronto Rehabilitation Institute. And I also want to add that the song you chose, James Blunt, I, you know, I listened to the lyrics and of course, be it's a few things that I can tell resonated with you because that song is about you. It's about changing the world in a positive way. It's about showing the way of a particular field and being brave when it comes to change and leading and standing ahead of the crowd. And that is what your career has been about. Uh, particularly those, I think it was 15 years at the Institute, the Rehabilitation Institute. Tell us a little bit more about the operations of that institute, what you built. Yeah, sure, Stephen. Um, but just to comment first on, on, on the song, the reason I chose that was that innovation, I think, is not just a question of cleverness, um, uh, curiosity, creativity. I think uh, and what I try to teach with um, with with the students is um, it's 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 worth directing it towards um, towards socially important problems, and when you direct it to these big problems, um, you know this it's they're hard to solve, and if they could have if they're big problems and they could have been solved before they would have been. And there's always resistance to change. So it actually takes a fair bit of stamina and motivation and bravery. I think bravery is important in the area of innovation. And I, I try to teach my students not to fall in love with the technology, but to fall in love with the problem. 
and then solve it however we can. And the end, so, res the end result? And, the, and then make sure the end result's applied. I mean, what's the point in doing it if it's not? Yeah. Can, you, can, can you give me, I mean, without divulging too much, but maybe a, an example or two of, of resistance to change that, that was the, your, your career there, there's no way it was a bed of roses. You must have had to overcome resistance. Could you give us an example of one particular project or initiative where there was great resistance that you had to overcome? Yeah, um, I, but there are lots of them. Uh, the current one isn't easy, I can tell you. Um, uh, if you want to get people to change their habits and wash their hands more, um, it's awfully difficult to do. Um, people, um, honestly, well, the first thing is if you if you you've got to approach it carefully because um, people can easily be insulted and can easily feel that you're trying to watch them from the sky and you're trying to punish them. Um, our current technology for getting people to wash their hands, we, we actually name the badges buddy badge. And we try to get people to understand that it's there as their buddy, their friend, to help remind them because they need to look after and they want to look after their patients and they also don't want to take bugs home to their family so we call it buddy badge there are no red lights, uh, lights there is no screaming sounds there's no criticism everything's positive right down to uh, sending them reward cards automatically um, and it takes a lot so that when you go in, um, people don't feel insulted, don't feel that they're being monitored, but they feel they're being helped. Tough to do, very tough to do. What, what specific technique did you apply to overcome? Like, how are you shaping psychological behavior? How are you shaping human behavior? How are you overcoming the psychological resistance, for, even as, for a simple thing like washing one's hands on a regular basis like what techniques you've said about buddy badge or there other is do you put signs up for example do you lecture i mean what are there other ways that you've come up with that to to, to hit the subliminal mind yeah we um we try to um show that we're part of their team to get them to accept us onto their team and we're there to help Everything's about being helpful. It's, um, you know, it's it, it, it's just very, very hard work. Um, we're now going, we're also now exploring going into the restaurant business and there, um, there will be resistance, but where the phrase we're using is green is clean. Nine out of 10 of the um, foodborne diseases that people get, and there are over 4 million a year in Canada, are because um, food handlers um, are not washing their hands enough. Um, so we go with green is clean, and we make sh they, they, they wear a badge, which is uh, they have to keep the light glowing green. Um, if they go to the toilet, it goes red. Um, the only way it can go green again is to wash their hands as they come out. Now that is fascinating. That that is that's that's amazing. That one. Um, in your private life, 
uh, let's say you're with a group of people and there's a dog in the room and they pet the dog. And of course, the dog's been out in the garden and so on. Do you actually mention to people about the concept of washing their hands in your private life? And of course, if you did, do you get resistance and anger in that? Like, do you bring this into your private? Obviously, you will practice it. But do you tell other people they should practice it in your private life? Yeah, actually. But not. I don't tell people. We just make sure we have lots of hand hygiene dispensers around and in our pockets and stuff and do it by example. Um, yeah, that's true. We do. Um, and it, do, yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. You go ahead. Do you get? Have, have you ever been approached and people say, "Oh, you're a clean freak"? Do the Do you ever hear that term? You know, I mean, I I wash my hands. Believe it or not, I do it. Maybe not as much as I should, but I do it because I'm thinking about these matters. But do you ever get attacked by any of these people in your private life? No, no, but but you're close to an important point. And that is that people, including me, are intimidated sometimes to raise the issue. If you're you're with a relative, for example, in a hospital, and you're monitoring things, and you see a caregiver come in and not wash their hands, or put a glove on without washing their hands, which is a common error, Gloves do glove gloving is totally useless unless you wash your hands before you glove and after you take the gloves off. So um, if you see someone coming in and do that, do you tell them, hey, look, you should really be washing your hands? No, you don't, because you're frightened. Because when you've gone, you think they're going to take it out on your mom or whatever. So one of the things that we do is that the the badges, for example, glow green when you've washed your hands for the first minute. Um, so until you, you know, because you, you'll touch other things, but for the first minute, you've got goop on alcohol goop on your hands, you're, you're safe, it glows green. So imagine you're a doctor and you come to the patient, the patient can now turn or the relative can turn and say, hey, um, Doc, your badge isn't going green, glowing green. And he can say, oh, damn, these bloody things never work. Mm-hmm. Um, and go over and wash his hands and come back with a green badge, right? So saving face is, 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 is important. Getting, actually, we, we try to get um, patients, uh, particularly in nursing homes. Um, in nursing homes, a lot of the care is provided by family. So getting them to understand how the caregivers have to provide care also translates to them learning to um, provide, to wash their hands and provide care appropriately. Yeah. It's a, it's a very difficult area. Well, of course, and and trying to do it for mass population, I mean, is, is, is even more difficult, especially we, we, we go to a care home once, twice a week. To visit a, a lady we know so we know about their pro- processes etc and I, I just can't imagine everybody's following these rules it, it's it's impossible to to adhere to, for all the visitors that are coming and going so it is a tough task Get, getting back to the thi um how do you, how do you choose problems and maybe Give us a, I know you talked about wheelchairs, but how, how do you choose these problems? Like, how do you identify problems for the rehabilitation when you work there? 
let's let's use an example. Um, a lot of people fall over in winter in our in our weather on ice and snow. They slip and they fall. I'm not good at remembering the statistics, but there are thousands of people who end up in emergency departments. Hundred percent, especially the ice in Toronto. Well, any it's it's a nightmare. One hundred percent. Yeah, and 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 so you know, in, to, traditionally in research in rehabilitation, people would focus on. Um, helping people recover because they've broken their hips and teaching them to walk again. Well, yes, you can do that and you might have an effect on a few people. What I decided was that, hey, why do people slip up on ice? Well, presumably because the friction between the winter footwear and the ground isn't enough. I mean, what what, what else could it be? Um, that's the primary reason. So we built a simulator, which is kind of like a big ice box, um, which has real um, ice inside, cooled by glycol, so the ice is actually pink, but we can control the temperature of the ice very precisely. So it can be either very hard, cold ice, or it can be slightly melty ice, which is very common in the winter, where uh, during the day, you get a sort of a very thin layer of water on top of the ice. And uh, the footwear behaves differently with both kinds of ice. And then we made it so that this whole ice box, this big room, can be tipped. And we would tip it more and more and more and find out what was the maximum angle that people could walk on safely in different boots. And we started um, a website which I'll tell you is RateMyTreads, RateMyTreads.com. And about in the winter buying season, um, 20 or 30,000 people a month go to that and look at, we rate all the, well, pretty much all of the winter footwear that's available. They go to that and they see and select footwear that has you know, one or two snowflakes and go and buy it. And the footwear industry has been very supportive of this. And what we've seen is that year by year by year by year, the frictional coefficient um, or the angle that people can walk safely on, um, which relates to the friction of the of the of the winter footwear has improved year by year by year it's improved and thousands of people have been prevented from falling we know that we know because of studies that we've done that if people buy winter footwear that has at least one snowflake on our scale rather than wear their regular footwear they have four times less chance of falling over four times less um so that's been a very successful program, and and uh, the uh, you know people like uh, Marx um, uh, promote um, uh, the footwear, um, referencing our our, our testing, um, and we're now getting some AI uh, into the design of the footwear, and it'll continue to improve. I'm Stephen Armstrong, and you're listening to Innovation Nation on Career Buzz here on CIUT 89.5 FM in Toronto and worldwide online at CIUT.FM. And our topic today is engineering practical solutions for everyday healthcare. Jeff, you know, that business about the 
the footwear. I slipped about three, four, five, I don't know, four or five years ago. It wasn't even a fall. It was one of those where your 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 leg stretches out and you pull the muscle in your knee or something like that. And it takes about six months to a year to actually recover. It is, you know, it, it's 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 not doing extreme damage, but it's it's stretching the muscle or or straining it in such a way that you can hardly walk for weeks so it, it's happening all the time and I bought these things for my shoe with spikes in them the problem was you have to take them off every time you walk into a store so and that and I, I don't mind saying I bought those at Costco but they are most inconvenient tell me about the science of the boots or shoes that you're developing I assume that you can walk indoors with them and outdoors yeah, it's very interesting. Um, yeah, they, the, the, the spikes work if you live in the country. And um, actually, I have some boots that you can twist a, a, a thing on the heel that causes the spikes to retract or extend, which oh. is kind of neat. Um, but there are two technologies that are used nowadays. Um, one is... Um, embedding kind of hard uh, um they, they it looks like uh, diamonds ceramic bits in the rubber in mm -hmm. the in the in the matrix and that works if it's if it's cold ice if it because it works by scratching at the ice um it's not great indoors but if you're careful it's you certainly don't nail yourself to the floor like you do with spikes or slip um, or slip with the spikes the spi slip, yeah yeah or slip with the spikes yeah. so that that works the other thing is to use the materials that are um, made up of fibrous material where the fibers are oriented vertically um, in the matrix so that it feels like a smooth surface. But if you take a microscope, you can see all these um, hairs sticking up and they, um, they work extremely well on wet ice. They penetrate the layer of water and adhere uh, uh, somehow. Um, and it may even be sort of at the Van der Waals force level, but they, they, they actually give some adhesion to the ice layer below. Um, there are, if you take a gecko, I don't know whether you mm -hmm. have yes, any Yes, of course. Down, no, I don't, but I've seen them. Go ahead, suction. They will, well, they actually will walk up a glass surface. Um, there's a molecular attraction going on between the their micro furry feet and the, and the glass. Um, I don't, I'm not claiming that it's at that level, but there's some very interesting physics going on um, with some of these materials. So the question these days is how much of the fibrous material do you use versus the scratchy material? Because you can't expect people when they're walking around to keep bending over and testing whether the ice is wet or not. And to have two pairs of boots and people, swap. People don't have time to think about these matters. Well, no, and you don't want to carry the boots around. So you have a mixture of both. And um, and, and the manufacturers have been trying to adjust this. Um, that's one aspect. Um, the other is that, unfortunately, all of these uh, clever material solutions tend to wear out rather quickly.
That's what's worrying me at the moment more than anything. We we rate these uh, winter footwear, but I worry that um, that the performance changes quite quickly with time, and that's still something I'm trying to address better. It's, it's, it sounds like that whole area of footwear is a work in process. It's not it, it's not at the optimum solution yet. That's no, what I'm... It, no, but it's improved, Stephen, a lot, um, a lot. When I remember when we very first started this, a company sent us a period, pair of boots to, to look at, and the company literature claimed that the president would go to the Arctic and demonstrate he could walk across ice. And I had a little block of ice, which we put at, at a two-degree slope, really tiny slope. And one of the students put on the boots because... They happen to be that size for that student. And we have a video of the student stepping onto this ice and immediately sliding sideways off. Um, there was absolutely no adhesion. Um, everyone burst into laughter. It wasn't a laughing matter, but there was absolutely no adhesion at all. And we've come a long way since then. We've now got boots, at least in experimental boots, that... Um, can walk on ice surfaces that are comfortably greater than 15 degrees. I've even walked on 23 degrees slope. Um, so it's it's coming, but there's a long way to go yet. You're right. Uh, we've, I know it's hard to believe, but we've about seven minutes to go, seven and a half minutes. And in that time, I have a couple of things I'd like to talk about. So some of your other projects, stairs, bathrooms, um, safety grip, handrails, and so on, maybe just give us a sweep of some of the innovations in that area that you've you've uh, been involved in yeah um you know handrails are very interesting um if you want to prevent falls um on stairs which is a very common source of falls i can give you lots of advice um for example try to have some indoor shoes that you wear um, rather than pad around on slippery socks. But most of all, um, make sure there's a handrail on both sides of the stairs. Um, it turns out that the handrail on both sides produces half the number of falls that a handrail on one side does. Make sure the handrail is graspable by your hand. You can wrap it around. So it needs to be round or close to round, about an inch and a half in diameter. Um, make sure it's at a reasonable height. It's about 36 inches from the nose of the stair vertically to the center of it. So that because when you fall, you're not just falling downwards, you're pivoting forwards or backwards. And if, as an engineer, you can imagine you need to generate a moment to resist that pivoting. Yes. So handrails are important. Now, on stairs, your hand wants to glide down the rail, and then if you fall, you want to grip it, and your hand needs to stop slipping. Whereas in the bathroom, um, if you're trying to get up out of the bath or you're trying to um, hang on to a handrail, you don't want your hand to slip, especially if it's wet and soapy. So you need a handrail that's shaped. So I came up with something which my sister helped me call sturdy grip. It's now called safety grip. Um, but it's a shaped rail where the, there are indentations that sort of fit the fingers, right? 
and um, and these rails uh, come in various forms. They're, they they they've not done particularly well on the market, but they're about to, I think. Um, and they are sort of modular, so they're easy to join together in different ways as temporary or permanent structures. I think that's that that's one area. Um, we also, um, I don't do the work now, but I set up the laboratory and encouraged and supported the work to um, in, provide input into the building codes um, so that um, we wanted to make sure that the, the run of a stair, you know, with the stairs, there's two parameters. There's the rise, which is the amount of upwards travel that you need to on each step. And the run is the is the depth of the step. And um, if you don't have enough run, if you don't have enough depth so you can fit your whole foot on, then you tend to, as you come down such stairs, your foot tends to overlap the front of the step and easily slips off. That can be pretty disastrous. Definitely. I have to say, we live in a Victorian home in downtown Toronto. And for some reason, I don't know why, but it happened. The Victorian homes, the stairs are very steep. I mean, I think they're 70 degree angle. Maybe that's exaggerating, but they're very, very steep. They're dangerous. And the step itself, your feet can be over the edge of it. And I've noticed this, so I'm constantly hanging. We don't only have railings on one side. So the having one on the other is a big help, of course. What for today, when they're engineering homes for people, do they consider what you're talking about? Is that engineer? Yes. Yeah, they do? Yes. If you build new stairs um, or you do major renovations and you need a building permit, then the Canadian standards specify the stair um, the have had input from the research lab into the design of acceptable stairs. It, it was a battle because... Obviously, there's a resistance to um, a, a lower um, gradient of stairs because it takes up more space yes, and, um, and that costs money. So there's always, as with anything you try to do innovatively, there's always a resistance somewhere. And you, I remember some pretty dramatic um, circumstances for voting for those um, those standards but eventually you get there eventually we get there um in, in the three minutes <laughs> oh, i'd love to talk for hours on this these matters they drink drill down into them but there's no time so in the three minutes how do you go from proof of concept from testing into full commercialization or application i'm not saying was the toronto rehabilitation institute set up to make money or was it set up to do research and then deliver it out into the community. How did that intersection work where you actually applied your research and got it adapted? Um, oh, it's such a tough answer. Um, each, <laughs> each, you don't get money to support it. It's really tough. Um, so actually I go to friends mostly, um, people who I know who have um, wealth and who are prepared to invest, um, particularly because they believe in what we're doing. 
Um, so they they're called angels in the investor world. Yeah, so the, this 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 latest company is is um, was supported by angel investors, um, and uh, you know I don't draw a salary from it. We all make sacrifices to make it work. I've got people who work with us who could earn a lot more at Google or Shopify, um, but they're there because they believe it. And hopefully one day it will make plenty of money and I'll be able to reward them appropriately. So it's it's uh, raising money is is tough, um, but we do it. I'm always looking for investors, always. But but um, still, still. OK, OK. So the motivation isn't commercial. I, I get it. And the motivation isn't to get rich and for profit. The motivation is to do good for society. And as you look back on your life, you say, OK. This, this, these are the value contribution I've left, but you still have to get this stuff adopted and applied. What is oh. that? I'm only like one minute. What's that process? How do you get these innovations have, adopted? Stephen, you're exactly right. I mean, you can't just be altruistic. The people who are investing have got to have the prospect of making a lot of money. Okay, so. that's it. Got it. So we do it. I mean, we, you know, I don't, I'm not looking for charity. I'm looking usually for, for patient investors who see the end purpose, but the goal is to make them rich. I once had a conversation with um, Joseph Rotman and he said, Jeff, he said, get money from your inventions, attract a lot of money because you can always give it away to support things like I do. So um, you know, if you've got it, you can give it, you can do whatever you like to support good initiatives, but you've got to make the money in the first place. Don't be gotcha. reliant on others. Jeff, we're done. I, I honestly wish we could go on. In fact, I would like you to come back again for a part two where we can actually drill down into some of your, well, some of your, your latest adventures and um i'd like to do that so thank you so much for being on the show today it was great oh Stephen, it was fun i'm always happy to do it you've been listening to the innovation nation on career bus canada's unique radio conversation empowers lives enriches careers and energizes organizations on ciut 89.5 fm i'm your host Stephen armstrong if you have any comments on the show email me at sarmstrong at amgimanagement.com thanks to my guest Jeff Burney, CEO of Hygienic Echo, engineering practical solutions for everyday health issues. A copy of this show will be on the CIUT website under Career Buzz in about three days. Thank you so much. I swear to God, if I am.